Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. The preaching will uh, particularly be concerned with what Paul begins to do uh, in chapter, or rather in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. But I'll begin reading at verse 1. Romans chapter 5. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. Of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. We hear in this word, O Lord, the prospect of hope for sinful people in a sinful world, and we do not want to miss what we're being pointed to as the ground for hope. So give us hope, the beginning of this year that holds so much that's unknown, give us Hope in light of something long ago done, apart from anything that we've done, which we can receive by faith. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two men, two fateful days, making two historic decisions determining two eternal destinies for the rest of mankind as a whole. That's what Romans 5 is talking about. We speak in our world today of world leaders, and we are giving quite a compliment to certain individuals whose decisions have such dramatic consequences that In some sense, the whole world is affected by their decisions. We talk about world leaders in our day, but Paul is speaking of the only two men who deserve that title in the fullest sense of the world, of the word. Now, in Romans 5, the apostle is reveling in this finished work of Jesus Christ and all of its benefits that he's been building to this point in the book of Romans. And he chooses in chapter 5 to accent all the glory of Christ's finished work on the cross by making a comparison between that work that Christ did and something that we've been studying of late at Resurrection Presbyterian Church on Sunday mornings. The work, the deed of the first world leader among men. There was one man in history who led the whole world into sin, by his unfaithfulness in a garden called Eden. And Paul wants us to compare that 
with another man who led the world into what will be ultimately a cosmic redemption by his faithfulness, first and most dramatically rendered in another garden. Garden of Gethsemane. When he's making the decision, will I do this? And you know what his decision was. These are the two Adams that the apostle is reflecting on. The word Adam, of course, means man. These are the two men who frame the whole of human history. Indeed, they frame, if you will, their deeds frame all of eternity to come. Heaven and hell. And the point of the apostle is when I think it's timely for us as a congregation to reflect on this morning, as dreadful a thing as it was when Adam first rebelled against God and brought all mankind into sin and misery, that dreadfulness is more than offset by the sheer glory of the day when the second Adam obeyed God and brought life and salvation for all who believe in him. So, brothers and sisters, before we go back to Genesis 3, and we will be doing that, Lord willing, we need to wrap up that very weighty chapter and then press on in Genesis and looking at all the fallout, as Genesis is very faithful to provide us, all the moral fallout from what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Before we do that, it seemed appropriate to me to step back and appreciate how everything that is tragically done by Adam the first is wonderfully undone by Adam the second, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the purpose of our departing from Genesis, dipping into Romans chapter 5 before going back to Genesis. Let's look first at Adam what I'll call our fallen champion. Then we'll look at Christ, our victorious champion, and then we'll look at ourselves as mere spectators of it all. So first, Adam. How much damage can a man do? In the case of one man, he can turn the whole cosmos into a place of sin and death. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. We know who the apostle is talking about, and eventually he's going to make it clear who he's talking about, but I think he thinks his readers know something about the story of the fall. They know right away who this one man is through whom sin came into the world. We've been looking at the circumstances of the fall, and Adam, rather, Paul is referring back to that in Romans 5. And brothers and sisters, it's not stating it too strongly to say that in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5, Paul is laying at Adam's feet all the misery, all the woe the world has known ever since. He says, sin came into the world through one man, 
or verse 15, he says that one trespass, that one deed, fateful deed as we sometimes speak of them, was the inception point of all sin of mankind. Uh, as Romans 5 continues, and you see Paul just hammering home this point, there it becomes clear that there is a twofold effect of what Adam did for all mankind. Uh, he brought death and he brought condemnation. Listen to those two things as Romans 5 continues. Verse 12, he says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. We have been studying what that meant. It doesn't just mean the collapse of our physical bodies over time or all at once. Most profoundly, it has to do with our very nature, our spiritual makeup. And spiritual death is what Adam and Eve immediately experienced. An alienation from God. This is an experiential consequence of sin. Adam and Eve have it, had it, and all of their descendants as a result. Death is the first of the two things, and you see the word condemnation that appears as well. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Or verse 18, the one trespass led to condemnation for all men. This is familiar to members of resurrection. If it's not familiar to you, this needs to be crystal clear in your mind. According to the scriptures, every sinner has a twofold problem. There's something wrong with him, and there's something wrong with his relationship with God as a result. His nature is that of sinfulness. He's dead spiritually. That's what's wrong with him. And as a result of that, there's something wrong with his relationship with God. He's guilty. He's condemned. This is the twofold problem of every sinner. And now we do well to ask a question that for many people has been very hard. What does Adam's deed have to do with my destiny? How is it that the destiny of every human being, not even created yet, could be determined by the actions, indeed the single act, of one man? That's a good question. It's a fair question. What is the principle here that makes this just and good? Well, it is a principle that is strange to modern ears. But brothers and sisters, get ready. This is a principle that runs all through not only the scriptures, but the world in which we live. It's a principle that lies behind the reality of heaven and of hell. It's a principle that lies at the heart of the gospel. And I want you to listen very carefully. This is the theology lesson within the sermon. 
by God's holy purpose. Adam as a man was appointed to act there in the garden not only for himself but for trillions of people. By virtue of the relationship that God had established between Adam and all of his descendants, his actions would count as ours. Theologians sometimes call that covenant headship. And when his decisions made, and there are actions that have consequences as a result, this principle is that all those he represented bear the full weight of those consequences. Theologians use the word imputation to refer to that. And by virtue of that relationship that all of us have with Adam, we don't have to wait until some age of accountability or awareness or anything else to be sinners. We're conceived in sin and, of course, born in sin. The sin that we inherit from Adam because of our relationship with him covenantally is called original sin by our fathers. Now, that principle is found throughout the scriptures. It's found in lesser ways, interestingly, in some family situations. You remember the story of Achan? Achan's sin, blatant disregard of God's command, results not just in Achan dying, but all of his family. He represents his family. They suffer the consequences of his sin. David, King David's sin, leads to God's punishment of the whole of the nation of Israel. There's some kind of relationship between David and all of God's people that his actions uh, must be borne by all of Israel. The priests of Israel had this role. When they were unfaithful to uphold true worship, God brought judgment, not just on a few priests, but on the people of God. When the kicker is responsible for making a field goal that will win the game or lose it, the rest of the team doesn't get to decide. We want his deed to count for us if we like what he does. If we see the outcome as favorable, nope. They stand or fall with what happens. And he kicks the ball. Brothers and sisters, you know that you've understood this teaching of Scripture rightly. If your response to it is an utter sense of helplessness. We've been studying what Adam did. Another person designated by God to act for you in this with the staggering consequences of it. You're not consulted. You don't have opportunity to, to be part of the choice even. And not only that, not only has someone been chosen to act on your behalf without any consultation with you, he's already acted. It, the deed is done. 
You weren't there. You didn't have a choice in the matter. Very unpleasant to many people. This doctrine that I'm seeing Paul open up in Romans chapter 5 was vehemently denied by one of the early heretics of the Christian church, 4th century heretic Pelagius. He absolutely denied that Adam's action had any direct effect on us at all. He taught every human being enters into the world in the same state of innocence as Adam and Eve. They only become sinners in the same way Adam did, by consciously choosing to do what God forbid. Plagius, I think, was motivated by the sense that anything else but that would be an intolerable representation of God's justice. It's not fair. That's the accusation many have had for this doctrine. I trust you can see that as the church rejected Pelagius, it was allowing God's word to define our sense of fairness. Whatever God ordains is right. And he clearly has ordained this. And so when St. Augustine in refuting Pelagius makes this point, he not only says, look at the Bible. The Bible teaches this principle of the headship of Adam and his sin counting for all of his descendants. But listen carefully. Augustine said to Pelagius, man, if you don't accept the reality of one man's deed bringing death and condemnation on all, then you will not be able to understand the architecture of the gospel, which entails one man's deed bringing life and justification. If one isn't fair, the other isn't fair. Pelagius, you're sawing off the branch you're sitting on as a Christian. So let's turn now to the other Adam, the other man in Romans 5. We looked at Adam as our fallen champion. Let's look at Christ as our victorious champion. And of course, thus far, I've just been picking from Romans chapter 5 the references back to Adam, but you know, you've seen as I read and as I've been citing that each time they're in a context where a contrast is being made between Adam and Christ. So, for example, verse 15, one man's trespass is being contrasted with the grace of one man. Or verse 16, the condemnation brought by one man is being contrasted with the justification brought by the other man. Verse 17, the reign of death through one man is being contrasted with the reign of life by the other man. And Paul's not tired yet of making this contrast. Verse 18, one trespass leading to condemnation is contrasted with an act of righteousness that leads to justification. One man's disobedience, verse 19, makes all sinners. One man's obedience makes them righteous. Children, for all of the 
deep stuff in the book of Romans and Romans chapter 5. Children, this part isn't hard to follow. Paul is comparing Adam with Jesus. And he's saying that Jesus came to the earth to do something similar to what Adam did. Similar, but with the opposite effect. Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do. As Jesus lived his perfect life of obedience before God, he is doing what Adam failed to do. And he came to undo what Adam did by that climactic act of obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the cross of dying in obedience to his Father. Remember I said, thank you very much, Adam, death, condemnation. Paul says those two things in the mirror are what Christ brought to us. What's the opposite of condemnation? Well, it's justification. Verse 16 again. Free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. By virtue of our relationship with Adam, we're counted guilty for his sin. By virtue of our relationship with Christ, we're counted by God not guilty on the basis of his righteousness. This is what he calls the free gift of righteousness. Now I ask you, does anyone now want to say, no fair? That righteousness is Christ's righteousness. It's not ours. We shouldn't get the benefit of something he did. God shouldn't treat us as righteous simply because Christ was righteous, we weren't even there. I don't know about you, but I think of Christ's righteousness being imputed to me as a wonderful thing. This doctrine of imputation is suddenly my friend. It's my hope which, of course, is what Paul is driving at in Romans chapter 5. It means that for the rest of eternity, I will enjoy the benefits of something that my man, my Adam, my second Adam did on my behalf. What's the opposite of condemnation? It's justification. What's the opposite of death? Obviously, it's Life. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Adam, in the garden, by his disobedience, secures death for us. Paul says, Christ, by his obedience, secures 
life for us by virtue of our relationship with Adam number two. We're made alive from the death we received from Adam number one. You know at Easter and then as our hymn this morning made clear, not just at Easter, we dwell on the fact that Christ's life had inevitable consequences for all of us who are in him. All of us chosen before the foundation of the world to be in him when he died, just like we were in Adam when he died, are also in him when he rises from the dead. Just as inevitably will we live as we have inevitably died in Adam. And here's the point. And it works for our hope. If it's inevitable, there's nothing to be done about it. You can't change it. Imagine, for some unimaginable reason, actually, someone said, but I don't want to be alive in Christ. I'd have to say to you, if you were in Christ when he died, I'm sorry, you're in him when he, when he lives. It's going to happen. It's a done deal. Can't be undone. Your life in Christ you're chosen in him is beyond your control. And that is unspeakably sure hope. Uh, it's what we call a Christ-accomplished salvation. A salvation that's wrought by someone you didn't choose and who's already done the deed that will determine your eternal future. And now a word about the word that I've been using, this word, champion. Paul's telling us that Jesus was our champion. And I'm using the word a little different from the way it's commonly used. We usually just have in mind the winner of a contest is the champion. But the older sense, the truer sense of the word champion is Actually, one who fights on behalf of others. That's what the word champion actually means. So, for example, Goliath was the champion of the Philistines in that famous story in the Old Testament. He represented the whole army of the Philistines, so his victory would be their victory. And his being beheaded by a scrawny little shepherd boy was their defeat. Adam was our champion. There in the garden, he was the one appointed to fight for us. And he fell like Goliath fell. David, on the other hand, he was the champion of Israel, of the Israelite armies. He represented them. His victory would be their victory. And his victory seemed rather unlikely. After all, instead of sword and spear, he had a few river stones and a sling. And he represents to us 
our Savior at the cross of Calvary, our champion. He did battle there with death and hell. Unlikely weapons. He seemed to fall. Oh, but it was only appearances. He led captivity captive. He defanged death. He secured there our justification and our life. And brothers and sisters, the whole of Christ's coming was oriented towards this great conflict on our behalf, the conflict of the cross. This is the principle of imputation, and it's at work for our good. Christ, like Adam, acts for us. While we stand helplessly aside, that's one thing identical about both of these champions, what they do, we had nothing to do with. So, let's take up our third point. Not Adam as our fallen champion, Christ as our victorious champion. Let's take up ourselves as those mere spectators that I've referred to. I watched part of a game the other day. Ah, it's hard to get through a whole football game for me, but I know some of you are different, and you not only watch them on TV, you might even go see one. I have a question for you. What's it like to sit up in the stands while your team is getting crushed? Gotta be a pretty helpless feeling for a fan. You're down there getting carried off the field. You're up there just wishing there was something you could do. Your joy, your sorrow, agony, or ecstasy is pinned on their success or failure, and you are a mere spectator. Paul's making the point, brothers and sisters. We are mere spectators in the two defining moments of world history. It's our eternal joy that this is the case, however, when we're looking at Christ on the field, winning, securing, accomplishing our salvation. Paul uses it, uses the expression twice over, free gift, to refer to that. We're simply receiving it. Here's what that means for those of you who are in Christ by faith, and he's the one who's championed you on the field of battle. You can no more lose the blessed consequence of Christ's obedience than you can escape in this life the effects of the curse for Adam's disobedience. Did you hear what I just said? We all are used to thinking about, or maybe sometimes trying not to think about, how inevitable death is. Because we're living in a world that's groaning under it. We're seeing it in our minds and in our bodies. There's not a thing we can do about it because Adam did what he did. Paul is putting before us the same thing can be said of the life that's in you. 
believers in Jesus Christ. It's inevitable too. Now, being renewed day by day in the inner man, one day to be raised from the dead, there's not a thing you can do about it. There's not a thing you can undo about it. <laughs> because the accomplishment of redemption, we're just up in the bleachers. Terrifying when you're looking at what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's the most comforting thought possible. You're looking at what happens there in Gethsemane. Jesus, full sense in his humanity of what is awaiting him, dawning on him in his humanity, all that is just there. And, and you're listening. You're listening from the bleachers. You're, see, you're hearing him say, Lord, Take this cup from me. Oh, well, what's going to happen? That's your fate. And he says, not my will. Yours be done. Just sitting in the bleachers, white knuckling it. And then he says, it's time. My accuser has come. You see him setting out to defeat death at the cross. This is of such great comfort, brothers and sisters, because it rids us of the fear that there is something we could do in all our mucking around in our remaining sin to undo our salvation. Because we, after all, are pretty miserable, struggling sinners, aren't we? We are incurring every day fresh guilt for ourselves. But all of that guilt has been borne once and for all by Adam II. God on our behalf. Are we called to live righteous and holy lives? Yes, and that too is inevitable. Because he's been raised from the dead and dwells within you and is perfecting holiness in you. Friends especially if you were here last week. I wanted then to press home to you this reality in the scriptures. How you live your life has everything to do with what heaven will be like for you. Suffering faithfully now leads to greater and greater glory than serving faithfully Christ now, greater and greater rewards then pursuing fellowship with Christ, sweeter and sweeter reunion with him. That was last Sunday. So live your Christian life mindful. How wonderfully significant this life is for the life to come. This week, it's very providential. I'm pressing home a parallel point. What you do now may have everything to do with what heaven is like for you. Whether you are in heaven or in hell is something already determined. It has nothing to do with what you do. The deed is done. The victory is won by Christ long ago. We're facing, as the people of God, a future that's been determined by another. 
that future were hell? Oh, terrifying thought. But it's thrilling. If that future is heaven, it's the solid ground of our hope. Our fellow believers, your salvation, as the French would say, is a fait accompli. It's a fact, accomplished, a done deal. It does need to be applied into every nook and cranny of your life. That's what we're doing right now. That's what God is doing in us. But it is utterly accomplished. Christ is obedient unto death for you. He has been risen from the dead. He has been raised from the dead for you. So I'll just say, brothers, as I conclude, Romans chapter 5 in a nutshell, salvation is like damnation in this respect. It's accomplished by the work of another on your behalf. Genesis 3 has been so bitter to see this unfold. Romans 5 presents us the glorious reality that it is in the process of being reversed. For those who know and love Christ by faith. So let's bear this in mind as we go back to Genesis 3. And all the wreckage of what Adam did. All that could be done by one man. And also be undone by the right man. It has been for you and me as we put our faith in Adam and the second. Amen. Let's pray together. So from the bleachers, O oh Lord, that your word places us in, looking at these two great contests, one to our eternal woe, or that all that is to take place, the other to our eternal blessedness, we offer up to you praise. Salvation is indeed of the Lord. It is his doing. It is a gift to us. And we humbly receive it afresh by faith, with gratitude beyond words. Grant us a life filled with this hope, the ground of our Savior's long ago, utterly completed victory on our behalf. We seek this blessing. His name. Amen.